Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Hey, Pod Saves the People listeners. It's Jess, executive producer of the show. We just wanted to wish DeRay the happiest of birthdays. DeRay, we love you. We hope you're having the best birthday ever. Thanks for everything you do. Happy birthday, DeRay. 34 years old. Rest, recharge, take the day off, and then let's get back to work. Hey, DeRay. This is Justine. I'm wishing you a happy birthday full of love, laughter, and lots of good snacks. DeRay, it's your birthday. You do so much for other people, so much for this entire world. We're grateful for all of the creative ways in which you lead. And I, most importantly, am grateful for your friendship. I wish that there were a version of I, 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 I could say to you to, <laughs> to annoy you. But happy birthday. Love you so much. Yo, DeRay, I'm so proud of the person that you are and the, the work that you do. You carry yourself with grace and generosity and I can't wait to see what you continue to do. And I love you. Happy birthday. Hey, this is Dre. And welcome to Pot Save the People. This week we have the news as usual with me, Brittany Clinton Sam. Brittany was calling in from motels, so she may sound a little different, but the conversation is still the same. I learn so much every week. I learned a lot this week. Then I'm joined by Jennifer Eberhardt. She's a social psychologist at Stanford University and the author of the book, Bias, Uncovering the Hidden Prejudice that Shapes What We See, Think, and Do. When I'm talking about bias, for the most part, I'm talking about unconscious bias. And it can be defined as the beliefs and the feelings that we have about social groups that can influence our decision making and our actions, even when we're not aware of it. The message this week is simple. Don't confuse being in the room with being able to make decisions once you're in the room. There are a lot of people fighting to be in spaces that will never allow them to make any decisions, that will never allow them to be seen and heard as anything other than props, that our goal is actually to make sure that when we build rooms, that they're rooms where people's voices can be heard, where people can participate, people can push, people can grow, people can challenge. It's not cool to just be in the room to be in the room. We want to be in the room to make change. Let's do this. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Tech Yeti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam's Way on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith Roman numeral three. <laughs> <laughs> you really did it. <laughs> you are not exempt from the eyes. I, I, I. And this is Dre at D-R-E-Y on Twitter. Yo. So we record on Sundays, and we know it's released on Tuesdays. And as such, the World Cup just ended 30 minutes ago. And so I am hype. I am exhausted. I'm overwhelmed. I am thrilled. I am so inspired and so proud of this team. Back-to-back World Cup champions, like some of the most remarkable athletes in the world, one of the best teams to ever exist in the history of sports, straight up. Like, it is... I'm just, if you've been following along on Twitter, you know that I stand for this team. <laughs> Your all caps be serious too. I'm like, oh, something just happened. Like, I need to pay attention to what's going on on Twitter. And then it's like, okay, no, thanks. <laughs> tweeting about soccer. Oh, man. It's specifically reserved for World Cup life. I did it last summer. 
they did this summer. These World Cups, both of them were incredible. This was so special. And I was saying before, I think, you know, Megan Rapinoe is just the perfect athlete for the Trump era. She is brilliant. She is courageous. She's honest. She says exactly what's on her mind. And she has, like, the entire MAGA ecosystem avalanching on her. And she's like, whatever. I don't care about y'all. Let me go ahead and score this goal. She was the best player in the World Cup, scored the most goals. She was voted player of the tournament. I mean, it's shout out to the queen, Megan Rapinoe, the rest of the squad. Incredible, incredible journey. I'm so proud. Crystal Dunn, shout out to Crystal, the diaspora holding it down. We out here. Listen, what we really deserve as a people is a Megan Rapido, Megan the Stallion 2020 ticket, right? So I'm going for <laughs> Megan, Megan 2020. And like, I wish that when I was a little girl, that we celebrated the female athlete as a society the way that we're finally beginning to. What we need to make sure that happens, though, is that we are wrapping the money around them as well because they have earned it. I won't even say equal pay for equal work because this was supreme, right? This was like y'all should be getting two, three, four or five times as much, um, especially given the performance of this team. So I'm hoping that this is not just attention and inspiration for women everywhere, but that this is also attention to creating the kinds of policies that ensure that women champions get what they deserve. The U.S. women's team is so much better than the U.S. men's team. Like for them to get paid the same would be also a grave injustice because the women's team is putting in the work. And, you know, frankly, I mean, they need to just redistribute the funds from the men's team all into the women's team so we could see the players compensated fairly for winning the World Cup. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. So the women get $250,000 each for winning the World Cup and a men's team that wins the World Cup would get $1.1 million, right? So they get four times less than a men's team would. And that's just in the context of the World Cup final. That's not even in the sort of larger structural context of like every day throughout the year. So there's a lot to be said. A lot has been written about how the U.S. women's team has actually generated more revenue in the last several years than the men's team. So hopefully this is sorted out. So I met Megan in 2016. She reached out around the protests and we connected. It has been amazing to see all of her successes before then and today. And I appreciate that she was one of the first professional white athletes, the first, I think, to stand with Colin and to just say, like, you know, this ain't right. You know, people ask me about celebrities all the time. And I'm like, when it was hard, there were a lot of people who just weren't down for the cause. When Colin was out there alone, people didn't have Colin on T-shirts. They weren't buying his merch. People weren't praising him in songs. Like, they weren't doing that in the beginning. It didn't happen until it got cool that people started to be like, oh, we rock with Colin. And I'm proud that Megan was one of the people that before it was cool, before it was a thing to do, and Megan was like, we know that's not right. And I'm going to use my platform to tell everybody this ain't right. You know, one of the great things about this World Cup and this women's team is that it is given in a political moment, in a historical moment where it is difficult to be proud of so many things that are happening in this country and in this country's name. The women have given us a reason to really be proud of this country and to be proud of like the fact that, you know, we're not praising this country. We're not patriots because we love this country without questioning it. We love this country and we cheer for this team because we know it's history, that it's complicated and oppressive, because we know that we have to work every single day to make it live up to the promises that it espoused in those founding documents. And so shout out to them. And we'll get back to, you know, so much of the work that we continue to do to try to make us feel as proud of this country every day as we feel today with the Women's World Cup team. So in that vein, for my news, I'm talking about a, a piece that was written a couple of years ago, but feels super relevant right now. It's in the Atlantic by Alexia Campbell. 
And it's talking about the relationship of undocumented immigrants and taxes. And that's something that's often misunderstood in the sort of larger political discourse. So every year, the Social Security Administration collects billions of dollars in taxes, and it doesn't know exactly who paid those taxes. Whenever employers send in W-2 forms that have Social Security numbers that don't match with anyone on record, the agency routes the paperwork to what's called the earnings suspense file. And that's where it sits until people can prove the wages were theirs and allowing them to one day ultimately have retirement benefits. The earnings suspense file now contains Social Security tax forms that date all the way back to 1937 and are linked to the taxes that were paid on nearly $1.3 trillion in wages. Now, there are about 340 million unclaimed tax forms recorded on file compared to 270 million about a decade ago. And a good portion of those forms were filed by employees on behalf of some of the most unlikely funders of Social Security, and those are undocumented immigrants. And the essence of it is that undocumented immigrants pay billions and billions of dollars in taxes for retirement benefits that they will likely never receive. So Campbell describes the system like this. Uh, She says, many immigrants who aren't authorized to work in the United States buy fake social security cards and present them to their employers who either don't know that they're fake or don't pay attention too closely. And when the employer submits a W-2 form and a tax payment on those workers' behalf to the Social Security Administration, the federal government holds onto those payroll taxes, even if the social security number isn't linked to anyone on file. Then a large chunk of that money ends up in Social Security trust funds from which retirement benefits are doled out to aging Americans. And in that vein, it's important to note that the Social Security system has grown increasingly reliant on this stream of revenue, particularly as aging baby boomers start to retire. So the essence of that is that undocumented immigrants are the ones that are keeping the Social Security benefits afloat for millions of baby boomers who are beginning to retire. Stephen Goss, who's the chief actuary of the Social Security Administration, estimates that about 1.8 million immigrants were working with Social Security numbers that weren't theirs in 2010, and he expects that number to reach 3.4 million by 2040. He calculates that the undocumented immigrant population paid $13 billion into the retirement trust fund that year and only got about $1 billion in benefits. Paid $13 billion, again, into the retirement trust fund and only got about $1 billion in benefits. He says, we estimate that earnings by unauthorized immigrants result in net positive effects on the social security financial status generally, and that this effect contributed roughly $12 billion to the cash flow of the program in 2010. So while it's true that not all undocumented immigrants pay federal income taxes or social security taxes because many are paid in cash or never fill out W-2 forms, but at least half of undocumented workers in the United States pay income taxes. They also help fund public schools and local government services because they pay sales tax, they pay property tax the same way any other resident does. And this added up to about $10.6 billion in state and local taxes in 2010, according to analysis by the Institute. So all of this is to say that the rhetoric about immigrants are taking things away, immigrants, they don't pay taxes, they're like stripping away resources from our country. All the evidence actually points in the opposite direction in that our social security infrastructure is being held up by these millions of people who are paying into it, who don't get to benefit from it themselves, and the fact that they pay sales and property tax the same way anyone else does. So another way to be mindful of rhetoric that seeks to demonize undocumented immigrants based on information that's simply not true. I think what is particularly significant here is that we talk about legalism as an argument, right? Well, I don't mind immigrants as long as they do it legally. We hear that all the time, right? But legalism isn't actually an argument for anything. Slavery was legal. Beating your wife was legal. In many states until recently, raping your wife was legal. There are lots of ways in which the law is behind morality. 
um, and morality and the law are actually not aligned. And so that doesn't convince me either. We also have to recognize that it took decades for immigration laws to actually exist in this country. So there are plenty of folks who say that their families came over, quote unquote, legally, but there weren't actually any laws to dictate how people should arrive on these shores when some of their ancestors came over. So we can never forget the hypocrisy that is baked into so many of these arguments. And we also have to remember, especially as we look ahead to elections, that we are electing local and state candidates that respect the personhood, humanity, dignity, and contributions of immigrants, and that they refuse to participate in the kind of dehumanization that is happening to immigrants all across this country. And that when we look to presidential candidates, that anyone who brings us a plan with anything less than clear, specific pathways to citizenship for undocumented people, we absolutely should be interrogating those kind of plans, pushing for more, and probably not giving our votes to folks who refuse to make that a priority. Especially in the week following July 4th, where so many folks were celebrating the American Revolution, American independence, and so much of that was fought over this idea, this rallying cry around no taxation without representation. Um, and the hypocrisy is, you know, you're seeing undocumented immigrants who are paying taxes, who are paying a lot of taxes, billions of dollars in taxes, and are completely unrepresented and are not able to vote according to what this administration is trying to do with the census. They're trying to completely sort of reapportion them out of existence in terms of setting the number of seats in Congress. Many of these themes are still alive today and, and the hypocrisy of seeing many of the folks who are celebrating on July 4th these ideals while going back to demonizing immigrants and pushing for the same policies that deny folks in the current generation the same benefits that folks were fighting for generations and centuries ago. So, you know, I'm hopeful that we can continue to push back against these narratives. Those narratives are not only untrue, but are based on, on racist assumptions. So I didn't know that I actually knew a part of this process until you brought it up. So thanks for bringing this up. I used to be the chief human capital for the school system in Baltimore. We employed 11,000 people, as many people as the city itself. And because of the size of the workforce, we had a host of issues that we had to deal with every year, every month. And one of the annual things that we had to do was the no-match letters from the IRS. So as you know, the employer takes out the taxes, sends them to the federal government. You know, because you've seen your pay stub and it says like federal income tax, state income tax, like the employer actually sends those taxes away for most people. And sometimes the social security number that the employer submits is incorrect. Like something was wrong and the IRS is like, we don't have a record of that person or the name could be wrong. So in the school system, I remember we would get a file actually from the IRS that said, here are all the mismatches. Like you submitted taxes for somebody that we have no record of existing. And then we'd have to go figure out what was wrong. So almost always it was like some number got transposed in the process. So say the employer was writing quickly on their form and they got hired. We thought that that was a seven, but it was really a two or something. Or you wrote it perfectly fine and the person entering into the computer, they messed it up. Like it could be a host of issues that would cause there to be an error. And we would get like, I don't know, 10 or 15 errors out of 11,000 people. Not bad. But the thing that was really wild about it is that you had to turn it around in a pretty tight timeline. And if you didn't, the employer got penalized by the IRS. So we never wanted to get penalized. So we would do it really quick. What I didn't realize is that the Obama administration stopped sending out the no match letters in 2012. And the Trump administration has started resending them. So why? And what I now know, because Clint brought this to the podcast, is that the no match letters are actually one of the first 
pieces of legal correspondence that can be used in deportation proceedings or in the immigration process to say that an immigrant is in the country and has not fully completed the immigration process. I had no clue that these no-match letters could be used as weapons in some capacity, and that's why the Obama administration stopped them. The Trump administration has restarted them because it'll allow the federal government to pinpoint and target pockets where there are high numbers of people who we know exist because the employer is submitting some taxes, but either it's like an incorrect social security number or a fake social security number or something. And it was just a reminder of how bureaucracy works because I was a bureaucrat. I was on the inside sort of managing these processes. And you don't even think about how they might be able to be used to harm people that you care about. And as somebody who had to do the no match letters, I just really had no clue. So that really, that really stuck with me. And the other thing is that we just realized too There was reporting just this week, actually, that said that the federal government had actually been using the photos from state motor vehicle administrations, like the driver's license photos, for their facial recognition program so that they could actually target immigrants. And you're like, man. So part of our work is to make sure that we do build these firewalls so agencies aren't able to share information like this that can harm people in the end, and that there have to be robust checks and balances for all government agencies so that we make sure that we don't harm people. So my news is about Texas. And before I talk about the specific piece of news, I want to give some context about prison labor in Texas. So Texas is one of only a handful of states that still do not pay folks for the labor they perform while incarcerated at the same time as they require folks to perform that labor. So Texas, Florida, Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, and to some extent, Georgia are among the last remaining states that have absolutely no pay for folks who are working incarcerated. And of course, there's a whole legacy for that that traces all the way back to slavery and convict leasing. And it's no coincidence that Black folks are disproportionately represented among those who are laboring. But I wanted to focus here on Texas because on June 23rd, a man named Seth Donnelly died while he was laboring in prison in Texas. And this story was fascinating because the job that he was required to perform was literally to act as prey for attack dogs in order to train them on how to catch people who escape from prison. And apparently, I I didn't know this about Texas, but I'm not surprised. Apparently, this is a quote-unquote job that folks who've been incarcerated have been required to perform for decades now. We actually don't know when this first started, but it has been going on for at least several decades. And in this case in particular, the cause of death was allegedly the suit that Seth had to wear in order to protect him from the attack dogs. And so in order to do this job, he had to not only be attacked by dogs, but wear a suit uh, that was exceedingly hot to wear in the context of weather that was over 100 degrees. And so he died allegedly of heat exhaustion with his body at a temperature of 106 degrees. So I wanted to talk about this because, you know, we talk about the conditions in prisons, in detention centers, now the conditions for children and families, immigrant children and families in internment camps. But, you know, this is an example of something that's been going on for quite some time in Texas that sort of flew under the radar. But it turns out that folks are not only being required to work in prison for no pay in Texas, but the types of jobs they're doing involve being attacked by dogs and dying of heat exhaustion as a consequence of having to engage in this strenuous labor. Yeah, and it's important to know that this issue of extreme heat in these prisons is not an issue, as Sam said, that is 
unique to Texas. I've been doing a lot of research on Angola prison. And in 2013, there was a lawsuit that was filed on behalf of folks who were on death row. And they said that the heat index had once reached 195 degrees Fahrenheit on more than one occasion. And they said in the summer of 2011, the heat index was above 126 degrees on 85 different days between May and August. And so you have to remember these are folks who are locked in cages at this point that have no access to AC, and they are a host of bodies piled on top of one another in these cages. And the heat index is in the 120s, 130s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, up to 195 degrees. Needless to say, it is inhumane. And it's also important to note the way that prisons and jails operate. There is so little accountability in so many of these places. And the lack of transparency makes it so that there can be human rights abuses on a regular basis for so many of those folks, and many of them may not necessarily have the capital with which to know how to even go about filing a lawsuit, right? Or even knowing how one would go about protesting or trying to get these human rights abuses changed. There is a campaign afoot in my hometown of St. Louis to close the workhouse. The workhouse is exactly what it sounds like. Um, it is a medium security city jail where over 90% of the detainees are pre-trial, which means that they are folks who have not been able to afford their bail and they've not been found guilty of any crime, but they're providing close to free and inhumane labor to the city of St. Louis. And there is a lawsuit that is a part of that campaign. RTD defenders who are fierce defenders of our liberties back at home in St. Louis. They, alongside formerly incarcerated folks, have taken up this lawsuit. In 2017, detainees were actually screaming from the inside of the workhouse because, similar to Angola, similar to Texas, the temperatures inside soared as high as 125 degrees, and it rarely fell below 90 degrees, even at night. And then, obviously, when you've got other issues of a decrepit, poorly taken care of facility, like rats and mice infestation, like spiders, like mold, like showers and sinks and toilets that don't work and that overflow, all of those issues are exacerbated by the heat. What we have to remind ourselves of is the immense question of morality that is before us. At the end of the day, we can't judge a society just by how it treats the folks with access, the folks with money, the folks who are well healed, the folks who have a lot of privilege to exercise. People deserve their humanity to be honored. And this should be something that we all continue to highlight as the shame that it is. So I went to Angola. I was there for six hours on a visit. I saw so much of Angola. Remember, it's 28 square miles, 18,000 acres, used to be three plantations. I also visited death row, and it is the most closed part of the prison because it's just so much space. The staff isn't really worried about people escaping because it is surrounded by the Mississippi River on three sides and like a mountain range in front. It is a relatively open space as much as a prison can be open. Death Row is very closed, however, and it is literally a model of the Panopticon. Like it is like there's like a central command and then there are all these like little hallways where people are held. And it was very hot in there. And it was so hot that there was like a bucket of ice. And if men needed ice then they could tap and then somebody would let them out so they could go get ice. It was really wild to watch and see. The second thing is a reminder that there are a lot of rules to get into prison. Like there are a lot of ways you can get into prison, a lot of rules to get people into prison. There are not a lot of rules in prison. So wardens have a ton of power. 
They're not like standards. There's not a ton of oversight. The people who actually run the facilities have a lot of discretion, like more discretion than you would ever imagine with how they can run a facility, where things go, who eats, how much they eat. Like you'd be shocked at how little accountability there is for wardens or prison directors. The third is, and you talked about a dog, but this made me think about the settlement that just happened in St. Louis. So there was a no-knock raid in 2014. A dog was killed, and they settled for $750,000 because a dog was killed. And it just blew my mind because, you know, St. Louis has the highest rate of police violence in the country, and we've seen almost no settlements for victims of police violence, but the dog gets killed, and it's $750,000. That's wild. So just wanted to bring that here because it made me think about it with the heat and with dogs. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like, I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. 
Ashley's Memorial Day sale is going on now. Shop our biggest selection of hot buys, cool deals, or shop limited time savings on new summer spaces. Plus, get 72-month special financing on select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Whether you're redecorating indoors or rethinking your outdoor space, save big on this season's trending styles. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. So I want to rewind to early 2013. I was the executive director of a large education nonprofit back in St. Louis. I had been in that role for a few months. And during the first few months of that role, I was wearing braids. Braids were convenient. They are a favorite style of mine. They're flexible and you can do a lot of different styles with them. And they made my life easy, especially given that I was taking on this really big job. I had been wearing those braids for a while and decided that it was time for me to change my hair because I wanted to. It was my prerogative. So I cut my hair and I had a short kind of pixie style cut. I went into a meeting with the dean of a school of education in St. Louis, and she had gotten used to seeing me in those braids. And this was the first time she was seeing me in this haircut. This means that my hair was straight, but I had kind of like, you know, a style that Rihanna or Halle Berry used to have. The first thing that she says when I walk into the meeting is not, hey, how are you? Not, I'm excited to get to work. Not, we're really excited about the new crop of teachers coming through this year. But, oh my gosh, your hair looks so professional. Never change it back. Mind you, I was in charge of hundreds of teachers who served over 20,000 students in the city of St. Louis. We raised four to five million dollars a year. But all of that paled in comparison to how professional she felt my hair was or was not. Fast forward to a few years later when Bill O'Reilly is talking about Maxine Waters on the floor of the House of Representatives and says that she is wearing a James Brown wig. Fast forward from there to August 2018, when a sixth grader in Louisiana named Faith Finity is kicked off of school grounds because apparently her braids are a violation of school policy. A few months after that, a high school athlete wrestler named Andrew Johnson in New Jersey literally has to cut off his dreadlocks in order to compete in his match. These are all examples of workplace and school place discrimination based on race. Why? Because as Senator Holly Mitchell of California said, the way the hair grows out of my head as a black woman is a trait of race. State Senator Holly Mitchell is the person who introduced a law that Governor Gavin Newsom just signed called the Crown Act to end discrimination across the state of California based on hair type and style. I know this might sound minor to some people, but as a black woman who has lived with hair based and race based and intersectional discrimination my entire life in and out of the workplace, inside and outside of schools, this is a major feat. There are folks like black executives at Dove who have been spearheading the Crown Coalition to bring together community activists and organizations to spearhead this effort, not just in California, but they're hoping to make this act a federal law. Race is indeed a protected class, and the things that are extensions of that race should be indeed protected. Again, this might sound minor to some people, but the faster we can get to a place where these are not the kinds of cognitive and emotional issues our young people have to deal with wherever they are, the faster we can actually get to a place of full equity, liberation, and freedom. 
as someone who is married to a black woman, was raised by a black woman, is raising a black girl who will grow up to be a black woman. I mean, this is, I think, a lot about the ways in which black women are made to feel as if they should comport their bodies in specific ways that are palatable to a sort of larger normative white gaze. And I just saw the Toni Morrison documentary that has come out. It's called The Pieces I Am, I believe. And I sat there thinking about how it was so wonderful and so important to see this woman, this statesman of the literary world, wearing her dreadlocks and talking about an interview she did many years ago where she speaks so beautifully about what it means to write books that exist outside of the white gaze and what it means to write books that are not concerned with what someone else is going to understand or not understand. And you put it really beautifully that your hair is an extension of your race. Your hair is an extension of yourself. These are not separate entities. Like when Black women's bodies are politicized um, and their lives are politicized, the hair is an extension of that process. This is something that seems to be an example that other states are starting to follow. So not only in California, which signed this into law, but now in New York and in New Jersey, they've introduced versions of this bill. And in New York, it's already passed both houses of the state legislature. So, you know, from an advocacy perspective, you know, this is the time to be pushing your state legislators to follow California's lead, to introduce these bills, and then ultimately to pass them and sign them into law so that this can become the standard nationwide and not be limited to more liberal states uh, or, you know, a handful of states on the coast, but really be something that nobody has to deal with, especially in places that have really engaged in a practice of not only sort of suspending folks from school or forcing folks to cut their hair, but you can see some of these disparities in the data where folks are more likely to be suspended, where folks are not able to come, whether it's to school or to work really uh, in their full selves uh, and express who they are. And I think that this bill is an important first step to being able to, to address that issue and, and create a reality in which we can actually do that. In the human capital work, I was a coach for so many managers and principals and leaders, like people who had staff and people who supervised staff. And it, one of the things that I got all the time was like pushing people on some of this stuff around representation and saying like, tell me how him wearing jeans makes him a worse teacher. Like what about it makes him like not as good of a teacher? And they're like, well, um, uh, but I think he should wear slacks. But tell me how like him wearing jeans like makes him worse today. And they're like, well, I'm like, well, tell me how her hair being like this took away from her skill. And they're like, well, you know, and it was always pushing people on the relationship between these things and skills that like, yeah, he wore that. You didn't like that T-shirt today. Like that actually didn't impact his skill. And it was one of the things that I was really shocked by because there were a lot of well-meaning people who would come up with these like ridiculous arguments around some of the things with representation in a lot of places are not protected. Right. So the employee doesn't have a legal right because almost no places protect a host of things. But as somebody in a manager position, it was like, no, I'm not going to support your decision around discipline for this thing that is discriminatory in nature and intent and has no impact on the thing that you say you care about. And like, it was a reminder to me about how even well-meaning people need to be pushed in the way they think and how we actually need to make sure that we are listening to how people justify their behaviors that like originally I thought that it was about power and control. Like that was sort of how I had experienced these people. And it was, but I hadn't heard the argument that people really did think that like the teacher wearing jeans made them like a worse teacher. And you're like, 
wow, like I had to listen so I could hear the way you justify that. So then I could push a little better. And y'all know I don't like to leave you without action. There are two things you can do. One is that to DeRay's point, you can interrogate the standards of professionalism in your workplace. Often standards of professionalism are really just a remnant of white supremacy and Eurocentric standards that shouldn't apply to everyone and often don't actually dictate the quality of someone's work output. And so if you are in a position to interrogate those very standards and systems at your workplace or at your school, do exactly that. The last thing that you can do is to push for the Crown Act to be adopted by the other 49 states. You can go to thecrownact.com. The Crown Coalition is looking to get 100,000 signatures on a national petition to ensure that folks all across this country know that this is a priority for us. So my news is something that I think we talked about a little bit before, but it's in the LA Times this week, and it is titled, California Police Are Destroying Files and Charging High Fees to Release Files. And it's about a law that passed last year. It went into effect January 1st, 2019, and it makes a small set of police misconduct records public. And what are the police doing? They're doing a couple of things. Some police departments are actually destroying the records, so they're interpreting the law as only being applicable from January 1st this year on, as in not being applicable to any records before January 1st, 2019. That's a wild interpretation. So they literally are just destroying any record before 2019. Other police departments are only releasing a handful of things. So LAPD only released a couple files. And then other police departments are just straight up refusing to release anything. The Orange County Sheriff's Department, the Long Beach Police Department, they have not released anything. San Francisco Police Department is doing something that should not surprise us. They're saying that they're getting so many requests that they are inundated and they actually need to hire up to 11 people to respond to their requests. The police are really good at turning every single thing into a request for more funding. And here's the thing, it's a small set of things that can even be released. So as somebody who used to respond to FOIA requests and MPIA requests, I know that especially when you know what the data is going to be that they asked for, like there's a small set of things that can be released under this law. They could actually streamline this and they could do it in a way that wasn't hard. The L.A. County Probation Department, which supervises young people held in detention, they've declined to release any records at all because they're saying the disclosure involves minors. Now, mind you, this is about the adult's who have committed wrongdoing. They could easily redact the minors' names, but they're using minors as a pawn in here. You can't be the people saying law and order is the way to go. We need to make sure that people follow the law. And when the people don't follow the law, we hold them accountable. That is what the police say. And then you openly defy the law. Like you don't get to play both sides of that. West Sacramento Police Department is charging up to $25 a minute to redact audio and body-worn camera footage, meaning that the footage from five shootings would cost about $25,000. L.A. Sheriff's Department charged a local outlet $1,700 to redact audio. And the California Supreme Court is considering a case that could limit the amount that agencies can charge for review and redaction because you shouldn't have to pay a fortune to try and figure out what happened. So I'm excited the law passed. I hope this law is a model for other states. But more importantly, it's a reminder that there's no public agency that should be above the law. There's no public agency that shouldn't be held accountable by the communities that they say they serve. So DeRay, as, as you mentioned, this is happening all in California uh, because they passed SB 1421. And when we think about California, we often think of it as a more progressive state. But on the issue of policing and police violence, 
So often it is behind other states. So in 12 states, police disciplinary files are public record, like all of the disciplinary files, except for those that are under active investigation. In California, even under SB 1421, it only makes available those files that involve death or serious injury caused by police or a sustained complaint of official dishonesty or sexual assault. So we're talking about a thousand records a year, a thousand cases a year that are made available by this bill of a total universe of you know tens, if not hundreds of thousands of cases of complaints of misconduct, even complaints that are being sustained of misconduct for a force that doesn't cause death or serious injury, or a whole range of other types of misconduct that are just not even open to the public even after SB 1421 passed. And for this smaller subset of the most serious cases, these 1,000 or so cases a year that involve some of the most serious misconduct that police officers can engage in, those are the records that they're now destroying. And it makes you think, you know, what are they doing with all of these other records that they still have access to that are not available to the public where we can't really track what they're doing with them? Like, we still don't know what these police departments are doing with those records. Uh, For the records that they are admitting to destroying now, this is really important to have this information to be able to establish a pattern of misconduct for particular officers. And those patterns are important to being able to hold those officers accountable. So currently in California, records are supposed to be maintained for five years. But the longer that they sort of drag their feet on this, you know, that five-year window, actually, you're getting more and more incidents that are allowed to be destroyed as per law, even by the police departments that are engaging in this under the law. Some of them are doing it in ways that are breaking the law, but even for those that are engaging it under the law, they can delete and or destroy records that are more than five years old. So, you know, in pushing to delay this, to push this through the courts, the police officers are trying to play this game where they're able to delete more and more records over time that we just can't get access to once they've been destroyed and can't use to actually hold those police officers accountable. Part of this conversation on police violence gets passed around like a hot potato. Folks at the federal level will say, well, there are 18,000 local police departments and they need to be making decisions. Folks at the local level will be saying, well, you know, we rely on federal funding, federal guidance to do our work, right? Nobody really wants to take responsibility for all of this. And we're seeing that, in my opinion, evidenced by the fact that very few candidates, I would say, save for Julian Castro, actually have a robust plan about this already. We see folks who say, we want to hold police officers accountable. But if you are not going to spell out the level of detail that you will put in place in order to do that, then there's really nothing for us to talk about. At the end of the day, things like good data on patterns and practices of individual officers and up from that of individual departments and up from that across states If the federal government is not setting a standard that that is data that should be kept and reported, then we're not actually going to see local police departments do that. We know over and over and over again that if we just leave things up to states' rights, to local rights and governance, that people of color and marginalized people lose every time. These are the places where federal standards have to be set. And especially as we continue to move on in this race, I want to see really robust plans that actually ensure not just prevention on the front end, but true accountability on the back end, including details around data, record maintenance, um, and reporting. 
it is a reminder of how much so many of these things are the result of norms and how difficult it is to enforce many of these things. But I say this to say, you know, it's easy for us to call these things Trumpian because he is the biggest, loudest example of it. But these are things that have been happening and continue to happen and will continue to happen long after this administration is gone, hopefully less so, hopefully we can put in more meaningful guardrails. But it is important to note that this type of action did not begin and will not end with the current occupant of the White House. And that when we're saying that something like this is Trumpian, it's important to remember that there have been places like we were talking about at the beginning that have been operating without transparency, that have been simply rejecting court orders to turn over documents, that have made a decision that the law does not apply to them long before this person was ever in office. And it's going to be local battles like this one. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay, leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Silence is golden, especially when it comes to brakes. That's why Napa Silent Guard are built to be one of the smoothest and most quiet brakes on the market. Made with fiber-reinforced shins that eliminate noise for the life of the pad. Rubber-coated hardware for a better fit and quality design that meets and exceeds OE performance. Silent Guard brakes deliver the stopping power drivers demand. Available now at Napa locations nationwide. And now my conversation with Jennifer Eberhardt, author of Bias, Uncovering the Hidden Prejudice that Shapes What We See, Think, and Do. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us today on Positive the People. I'm excited for our conversation. I am excited to learn. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because of the book Biased, Uncovering the Hidden Prejudice that Shapes How What We See, Then Can Do. I have a lot of questions about bias, but how did you get into this work as like your field of study? Well, I'm African-American and I uh, grew up in a neighborhood that was all black in Cleveland, Ohio, back in the day. And when I was 12 years old, my parents decided that they were going to move us uh, to a suburb called Beechwood that was a mostly all-white suburb. And so that experience, the moving there and seeing that the world operated in almost a completely different way, even though the neighborhoods were pretty close together, I think led me to be curious about race and led to lots of questions that I never stopped asking, really. How do you define bias? Yes. So when I'm talking about bias, for the most part, I'm talking about unconscious bias or what people call implicit bias. And it can be defined as the beliefs and the feelings that we have about social groups 
that can influence our decision-making and our actions, even when we're not aware of it. So it's different from, you know, what people think about typically as racism, as like old-fashioned racism, where you have people who are motivated by hate, who are burning crosses and so forth. So this is a kind of bias, this unconscious bias is bias that can influence us even unintentionally and even when we're motivated to do the right thing. Is it a result of our surroundings? Is it what people are people born with bias? You know, I've heard people say, well, everybody has bias and, you know, just is what it is. How do we make sense of those things? It is a complicated question. So it's true that the way our brains function, that we function with categories and we function with stereotyping and so forth. And that's because you know, we're bombarded with all of this stimuli out in the world every day, and we have to figure out how to manage it and how to bring order to it. And so our brains will use these tricks to help us to deal with all this information. And so categorization is one of those tricks where you just put like things together into the same group. When you do this with people, we develop beliefs about the people who are in that category now. And those beliefs are called stereotypes. And we also develop attitudes about the people who are in that category. And the attitudes are called prejudice. And together, the stereotyping and the prejudice equals bias. And that bias can influence how we act and how we make decisions. And is that not the same thing as racism? So you seem to have made a distinction earlier. And when you talk about this notion of stereotypes forming, is that not how we should think about what racism is? Or is that close to how we think about racism forming? Or am I completely off? Well, what I'm talking about with this categorization and stereotyping, they are sort of what we would consider kind of natural processes. And this kind of thing is happening not just in the U.S., but all over, right? It's in different cultures. You know, people will use stereotypes. The groups might change and the nature of the stereotypes might change. But the act of stereotyping is something that a lot of researchers consider universal. When we're talking about racism, we're talking about sort of people who have developed some, you know, hatred, uh, maybe, if you want to use that word, towards certain groups, and that they're conscious of that, and they're willing to act on that. So that's different, and it's a smaller group um, than what we're talking about with this unconscious or implicit bias. It's almost like you can think about um, old-fashioned racism as kind of acute, whereas the unconscious or implicit bias is more of a chronic condition, right? It's uh, something that can flare up. It's something that's beneath the surface. But, you know, under certain conditions, it can kind of spring up and it can give you trouble and could cause problems. So they're connected, right? Uh, but they're kind of two different things that we're talking about here. What happens, though, when the bias is no longer unconscious? So when people are confronted with the bias they hold around race, for instance, and they continue to hold it, like the biases don't change, is would that be racism? I'm trying to think about, about the people who, like, we name it. We're like, hey, you're doing this. This is what's translating into behavior. Is that then racism? So maybe we can make a distinction then between sort of implicit bias and explicit bias. So when it's implicit you don't know that it's there. You don't know that you have it. You don't know that it's affecting you in all these ways. When it's explicit, it's on the surface. Uh, people can see it. You can see it. You might be okay with that. And um, it's not something that's hidden from view. So sometimes bias is implicit and it's hidden from view. It's hidden from yourself. And sometimes it's hard for other people to see it even operating. 
And then there's explicit bias where you're able to name it and you're aware when it's affecting you, you're aware of when you're acting on it. So that's different because it's become conscious then. And I think sometimes people uh, think about this different type of bias as one where there's a moral element to it. And I think when they're thinking about people who are just bad people or, you know, sort of people who have sort of made conscious decisions to behave, say, in, in hateful ways and all of that, there's a moral element there. But that moral element is not quite there in the same way when you're talking about the implicit or this unconscious bias. You can act on this bias and not be aware of it. And it's not the case that you're a bad person because of it, but your actions can lead to really negative consequences. So much of what we spend time on around policing and mass incarceration is about myth busting, that people just believe all these things about the system that aren't true. I'd love to know, what are some myths out there around what you've learned in the bias world from all the trainings you've done with institutions and the research you've done? Are there any myths or things that we just believe to be true but are wrong or things that are true and people just don't ever think about? I think that it is a myth that if you hold a bias, that means you're a bad person or that the bias is something that is conscious, it's willful, it's, you know, something that you have a motivation to hate. And for some people, that could be the case. But for a lot of people, it's not. And I think that's what's so pernicious about it is that um, the bias can influence us even when we don't know it's influencing us. And it's not something that only certain people have or certain groups have. We can all have bias. I mean, even people who are African-American say can have bias that can get activated. That's a racial bias where black people are the target of that. So it's a lot more widespread than people want to believe. What do you find when you do these trainings in companies or what do they when they call you? What do they say? I'm curious to know what is the ask when they actually call you? So I can give you one example of that. So the um, person, one of the co-founders of Nextdoor reached out to me because she knew I was a researcher and I studied bias and they were worried about racial profiling on the platform. Now, the platform is in place to try to bring people together and to create, you know, sort of tighter neighborhoods, healthier neighborhoods, happier neighborhoods. But they were finding that those neighbors, or at least some of those neighbors, were using the platform to profile people, usually black people. They would look out the window and see, you know, a black person in an otherwise white neighborhood, and they would go to the computer and start uh, to make all of their neighbors aware of the suspicious person. Sometimes they'd call the police and so forth. And so that led to a lot of heated arguments sometimes on the platform itself. And so, you know, you're building this platform to, to bring people together, but then because of this profiling issue, it's tearing people apart. So they were real motivated, right, to try to curb it. And so they were calling me and and they reached out to other researchers to try to figure out what do they do to solve this. And they also looked at the literature. And this is another, if you want to talk about misunderstandings about what bias is and how it works, you know, even though we are all prone to bias, so we're vulnerable to bias, that doesn't mean we're acting on bias all the time. There's certain situations that'll trigger it and that'll bring it alive. And so having power over that bias or having some control over it or even responsibility for it means understanding the situations under which bias can get activated and can lead you to make decisions that you wouldn't otherwise make. 
So here is a situation where people were in a heightened state. So that's where bias can emerge. So when you're feeling threatened or fearful or when you're under stress, bias can emerge when you experience all those different emotional states. Bias can also emerge when people are having to act quickly so that you're trying to make split second decisions and you're, you don't have time to think. And so that means you're going to fall back on these well-practiced associations that you have, say, between blackness and crime. And you see a black person, you think, oh, something's wrong. You know, this person looks suspicious and you're worried about criminal activity. And so you go to the platform and you want to alert all your neighbors to this as quickly as you can and so forth. So what they had to do was to think about how do you slow people down? If you want to curb bias, how do you slow people down so that they can make better decisions? And for them, it was a difficult situation, right? Because a lot of tech products, including theirs, it's designed to help people get to where they want to go quickly. And that's where the bias can get you. That's where it can emerge. So they had to think, well, okay, if we're going to curb bias, we might get a lot of drop off on our platform because of the friction. But they decided they were going to go ahead and put the friction in there because, you know, the issue was kind of core to why it is, you know, that they exist. And it was kind of, you have to address it. So they decided to add a checklist. So now when people go to the platform and they hit the crime and safety tab, instead of just typing and contacting all of the neighbors and say, hey, there's a suspicious person out there, you have to answer a series of questions. And the first question is, what is it about this person's behavior that's suspicious? So it can't be a suspicious black man, which is what was happening before. It has to be a behavior, not a social category that's suspicious. And then the second question was, describe this person. Uh, and you have to describe the person in enough detail so that you're not putting all these people under this banner of suspicion at once. And what they were doing before is when they described the person, they would just mention the social category. They would just mention, you know, black male, uh, basically. And then the third thing they did was to describe and define what racial profiling was. You know, a lot of people didn't know what it was or that they were engaging in it even. So they defined it and they also said it was prohibited. So they set a social norm on the site that you can't do this. This isn't acceptable to us. And they found that creating that kind of friction led to a 75% decrease in racial profiling on the platform. They were able to curb it, which was what the main goal was. I assume that you probably go into some workplaces where there's been like an incident, right? Like a, a sexist incident or like a racist incident or like something happened, like trauma happened, which is why they're calling you in. But like something happening in the company, how do you approach? Do you approach those differently or like what does that look like? Well, I have experience approaching that in police departments, right? Oftentimes, they will call me in when they are having issues with trust uh, in the community. And then also, you know, sometimes there were high profile incidents that happened that have a racial component to it. So those situations are difficult, you know, because people are threatened. And like we just talked about, right, it's hard to learn when you're threatened. And so that makes it difficult. It's hard. You have to break through all of that before they're with you, before they can actually engage with you, before they can learn. That's hard. I was interested to talk to you because we are pretty critical about the implicit bias trainings that police officers get, not because we don't necessarily believe in the concept, but because we don't really know what it means when there's no accountability, right? So you do a training like that, or you do an assessment, 
people unpack their biases, they realize that they have these biases around race, and then nothing changes. Like, they don't, it's not like they get reassigned all the people with biases against Black people, you know? How does it not become just another, like, thing on the checklist? Right. I agree with you. I think it often does become something they can check off. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that the trainings aren't evaluated for the most part. And even when you ask them, are you evaluating the training? You know, they'll say yes. But when you ask how, let me see the data on that. Let me see what um, questions you're asking. Like, you know, what are the metrics of evaluation, for example? And uh, mostly how they're evaluated to the extent that they are is basically they ask the officers whether they like the training. That's why we don't believe in it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I don't blame you. I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, I think you want to. And I think when people push to have these trainings done, they don't push equally hard to actually have those trainings evaluated. I mean, you, you want the trainings done because you want to see some kind of change, but then you're not demanding that that change happens or even that you are looking to assess whether that change happened. So I agree wholeheartedly. The other thing that worries me about it is that sometimes the bias training can get in the way of the other things that you want to do. And so if you can show, you know, that you've done the bias training and you can check that box, you get credit for that to some extent. And so it could make you less likely to do the harder things that are around, you know, changing procedures or changing policy or changing the culture. So I agree. I think it can be problematic. How have you found those training sessions to be? So, I mean, it depends on the context again. So um, they're more difficult when, you know, there's some incident that brought you in there. When I first started working with the police years ago, it was a different climate. And the only way that they had to deal with race was if they were getting sued or if they were getting monitored. And so it was... So there are lawyers involved, basically. And so there was a lot of uh, threat, I guess, there and a lot of vulnerability. So as a researcher to walk in to say, you know, before any big incident happened that, you know, led to being monitored and, and so forth, you go in and you say you're interested in understanding the way that race operates in the policing context. And oftentimes, or at least with some chiefs, they're actually open to that because they understand that race actually can influence their officers in different ways, but they hadn't had a way to really address that outside of this sort of legal way. And so being able to understand how race is, is, uh, you know, affecting officers and being able to then go in and and to make a change in some way once you have that understanding is that's a lot of power to have. What can everyday people do to combat the negative effects of bias? Well, you know, I think everyday people can do the same kinds of things that our institutions or our corporations can do. I mean, I think understanding, again, uh, when bias is likely to get triggered, knowing, for example, that when you're making a split second decision, when you're moving too quickly, that bias can influence you. So if you have the opportunity to slow down, to slow down. And then also when we're cognitively depleted, you know, when we're tired, when we're under threat, when we're stressed, when we're fearful, like all of these kinds of emotions can lead us to act on bias more. And so just being sort of mindful of the conditions or the situations under which we're likely to act on bias, I think is good information to have both as an individual person in managing your own life, but really good to have at this institutional level as well. 
There are two questions that I ask everybody. One is there are a lot of people in this moment who are losing hope, right? There are people who like have voted, protested, emailed, called, went to the meetings, all the things. And the world hasn't changed in the way they thought it was going to change, like hasn't changed quite yet. What do you say to those people? I would say that hope is precious. You know, hope is critical really to our survival and we have to do everything we can to protect it. And also when we don't hold on to that, not only does the world kind of, you know, there's a vulnerability right there for things to get worse, but we also, um, you know, are not bringing our best selves anymore, right? When we lose hope, we don't show up in the same way. And what is a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? I think the advice I've gotten is to do the thing that only I could do. And I always hung on to that because I'd always, you know, get opportunities to do various things. So everybody has a unique role that they can play in a certain space. And identifying that and understanding that is is important because there are lots of people who can do these other things. But what can only I do? Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us on Pod Save the People. Can't wait to have you back. Thank you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Ashley's Memorial Day mattress sale is going on now. Save big on select adjustable mattress sets up to $1,200 on Beautyrest Black, up to $800 on Purple, and up to $500 on Tempur-Pedic. Plus, get 72-month special financing with select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Visit your local Ashley store or ashley.com for better sleep and savings. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details.